Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. I have Jess with Happy Belly Coaching. She is a clinical counselor and one-on-one coach that specializes in mind-body coaching, mindfulness, and everything motherhood. She has her bachelor's in psychology and sociology and her master's in social work, along with certifications in nutrition and pre- and postnatal coaching. She really focuses on nutrition, mindset, and overall health and wellness from preconception to postpartum. She lives here in Atlanta. She has two babies herself, a puppy and her husband. And she also has a podcast, which I just learned about, called Listen Mama. So be sure to tune in for more around this topic. So welcome just the Little Bi podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited um, because as you know, I have a little four-month-old at home, so this is something that I am super passionate about when it comes to uh, preconception health, having a healthy pregnancy, and the postpartum period because one of the things that we know is once a baby's born, um, kind of all the focus goes to the baby, and sometimes we forget about the mom. Oh, 100%. Mom goes from having appointments, you know, every month to every week to all of the focus being on babies. So I love that we're going to chat postpartum today, too, because it can get overlooked, but it's such an important part of the journey. I know. And I know for me, like reading some of the statistics, it's like, you know, postpartum depression and even postpartum Mm -hmm. psychosis, like these things are not talked about enough. And so when the mom is struggling, they feel bad because they're like, well, I just have this perfect, healthy baby. And um, I just, I love the work that you do because we need to talk about uh, women's health surrounding pregnancy and delivery just as much as we need to talk about the baby in the postpartum period. Uh, So I thought today we could kind of break it up into preconception for those listeners that are thinking about maybe starting to try to get pregnant, pregnancy, and then um, spend a good amount of time talking about that postpartum period. So when you think of like preconception, what what do you count that as? Is it just anything in childbearing years? Is it the year before you think of, of conceiving? What does preconception mean to you? For me, it really refers to that period before a woman woman is actually trying to get pregnant. So maybe pregnancy is on the radar. It doesn't mean that you want to be pregnant tomorrow, but you're in a position where you're actively starting to work towards that. There are lots of healthy lifestyle habits that a woman should be making at any point in her childbearing years, even if pregnancy is far off in the distance. But when we're looking at pregnancy being a little bit closer, then we want to start making some lifestyle changes that help support a healthy pregnancy pregnancy. So for me, the preconception period is definitely three to four months before conception. But if we can even start making changes six months to a year prior to getting pregnant, it's going to set a woman up for even more success when she does get pregnant. I think that's key because I really even tell women, I'm like, if it's a year before you're thinking about having a child, it's a good time to start reducing inflammation, eating whole nutritious Mm -hmm. foods, taking a prenatal. Uh, So when you meet with a client who is in this preconception period, what are some of your big goals for them, especially when it comes to diet and lifestyle? So it's really, well, it's multifaceted, right? We're looking to ensure sure that she has a healthy menstrual cycle. Are there things that we can be doing in terms of nutrition, in terms of exercise, stress management, sleep, all of that, to make sure that her body is operating as healthy as possible? And if not, exactly like you said, if we can get started a year in advance, it's not going to hurt anything. But if something doesn't seem quite right, that also gets us more time to get her in with a doctor, to get labs drawn, to have a support team who's helping her 
optimize her health leading into that period. So we're wanting to make sure that we're taking a holistic approach to helping her be her healthiest self. We're also wanting to make sure that she's at a healthy body weight, that she's not too underweight, that if she's overweight, that we can start working towards a more optimal weight. And that really means whatever weight your body maintains when it's eating nutrient-dense foods, it's moving regularly, it's not necessarily the weight that you were in high school or some vague number. I see that a lot with moms. Like, I just want to reach a goal weight before I get pregnant. It's not about that. It's about getting you to a set point where you feel your healthiest. And honestly, one of the biggest goals in preconception is trying to fill up those nutrient stores. So as soon as mom becomes pregnant, she's creating an entire human being who needs certain nutrients in order to develop appropriately. And the only way that baby can get those nutrients is by taking them from mom. So we want to make sure that mom not only has enough nutrients for baby to be able to develop however it needs, but also so that she's not been left depleted or deficient and potentially feeling worse throughout her pregnancy. And those are all things that we can do before pregnancy even happens. I love that you mentioned the menstrual cycle because they really say that's the a female's fifth vital sign or like our mm-hmm. report card of our health. So what are some questions that you ask around uh, women's menstrual cycle to figure out if it is maybe a healthy cycle? Are there certain questions you ask? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of clients who have come to me who just are having completely irregular cycles and they or they've never tried to track it. They have no idea if they're ovulating. So, so much of it is even about starting with awareness. You know, can they start tracking their cycle? Do they want to start tracking their body temperature? Are they wanting to do any sort of ovulation test? I think them feeling empowered and learning about their menstrual cycle so it doesn't feel like this scary foreign thing that they've got no control over is a huge first step. And then also noting, you know, if they're having a lot of pain around periods, they're having major mood shifts, a lot of water retention, any sort of symptoms that are going on um, that might indicate that things could operate more optimally, or even if it's an opportunity to get them in, to get some labs drawn and have a medical professional oversee whatever medical care might help to balance hormones more optimally too. Do you have any favorite apps for tracking menstrual cycles? Um, I've had a lot of clients have success with, um, I think it's Ovia, O-V-I-A, and there's several out there. I think a lot of it's just whichever one also feels most user-friendly for you. I know I used Clue and- Oh, yes. Yeah. The good things about that too. I loved Clue because it allowed you to like really quickly, I need things that are super quick and efficient. And it let me put, if I was feeling overly stressed, if I was feeling irritable, if I was feeling bloated, you could like click it at a touch of a button and then you can look at one screen and see, okay, common denominator, I feel more stressed the second half of my cycle every single month. Like maybe mm-hmm. I need to make some changes or look at my hormones. Um, so I love the way they they break that down. One of the things yeah. I've been getting into a lot more is just even like cycle syncing and understanding, mm-hmm. you know, how to maybe exercise during different parts of your cycle, how mm-hmm. to eat a little bit differently. Is that something that you get into with your clients? It is. Yeah. There's some really interesting research about times in your cycle, like the later half where before period, your period might start, where you might be feeling a little bit more lethargic or fatigued or struggling to recover and being able to switch more towards lower intensity or parasympathetic work, um, maybe even being able to up calories a little bit to support that and then transition it throughout your cycle. And not all clients need that. Um, For me, it's not like a entry level habit that we start with right away, especially if somebody's kind of newer to nutrition and just starting to focus on healthy habits. But it can be a really cool tool in the toolbox just to help people feel better during that time. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things I was reading is that you could burn an extra 200 calories in that luteal phase just that second half of your cycle. And so when women are doing intense intermittent fasting or really dropping calories to try to lose weight, that can really hinder preconception Mm -hmm. and your ability to conceive. Um, So when you're looking at really nutritious food, I, one, you put a lot of great information in that first kind of intro. And you were talking about how that healthy weight is not what you weighed in high school. And I think so many times we think about, okay, I felt my best at 120 when I was graduating high school and I want to work towards that weight again. And I love that you mentioned that it's the weight you are when you're eating good nutritious food and you're moving your body. I think that is just 
it's not about the number on the scale. It's about our internal health and being okay mm-hmm. with not being the size that we were in high school. So I just wanted to reiterate that because I think that's really, really key. So when you're talking about nutritious food, what are some of the places that you start in this preconception period? Is there certain foods you really try to get your clients to up when they're thinking about conceiving? Yeah. I mean, it depends on where they are, right? If somebody, if you are in a position where just lifestyle wise, you've maybe started eating out more than normal, or you're not prioritizing protein at at every meal, um, vegetable or fruit intake is lacking, then it's always just about the next right step, right? There's no superfood. There's no one food that's going to get you pregnant. It's about just starting to incorporate more micronutrients so that we can fill those nutrient stores so that we're um, doing our best nutritionally to balance hormones. There are some foods that we want to shy away from if possible. We don't want to be eating a ton of soy and getting phytoestrogens in and potentially impacting hormones through that. Um, But if we can be getting in regular intake of proteins, good micronutrient-dense vegetables, fruits, and healthy fats. Um, cholesterol comes from fat. So if we can get in and, and the quality of our fats matter, right? So grass-fed beef, uh, oily fish like salmon, um, even liver, if you're okay with that. I think that those are all bone broth is excellent too. And there's actually been some studies that have linked full fat dairy with increased fertility. So if you're in a position where you're eating maybe a low fat yogurt and you can just switch that over to a full fat, that's an easy switch to make too. That's awesome. Well, and I think it's exactly what you said that fat is, it's the, it helps us get cholesterol, but cholesterol is the precursor of all of our hormones. And so if we are trying to conceive, we need optimal hormones. We need a good high fat. And I'm really happy that it feels like across the board, my patients at least are kind of understanding that fat is not bad. Um, so I really, I'm happy with the changes we've made in our culture to understand that like salmon and nuts and nut butters and avocado and full fat Greek yogurt and all these things, um, they're not bad. And fat doesn't make us fat. And so um, I think that's a little bit more mainstream now, which I'm super excited about. And you also mentioned being like underweight versus overweight um, when it comes to fertility. And that's something because of my line of work in functional medicine, I deal with a lot of women that, you know, are really, really healthy and maybe a little bit too healthy and Mm -hmm. their body fat percent gets down 12, 12 and a half, 13% body fat. And you know, when we do the body composition scans to look at that, we really aim for 18 to 28% body fat um, to help with fertility. As you said, you don't want it too high or too low. Um, I know you do a lot with that mindset is that is one of the toughest things I feel like when I meet with my patients, when they feel really good, they're super, super healthy, their body fat is really low, is kind of shifting that mindset. Have you found any techniques, any books, any resources, any um, conversations that you've had that have helped women maybe become a little bit more comfortable with some of the body changes around pregnancy? It's it's really difficult. And I think we just kind of have to call a spade a spade if we're starting to. So I've worked in the past with a lot of athletes, a lot of busy women, a lot of high achieving women, stress or training is often really high and nutrition or caloric intake is often pretty low, whether it be because they're so busy, they don't have time to eat, whether there be, you know, a chronic history of dieting, which I find constantly with women who are actively trying to get pregnant. I don't know about you, but I started my first diet when I was 12. It was just kind of the norm. And I think that that's starting to shift now, but now we have a lot of women in their twenties, thirties who have spent majority of their life dieting, not aware of the implications of that. And still in the habit of, I need to eat less and exercise more in order to have the body that I want to accomplish. And as a result of it, it's really improper cycle. You know, our menstrual cycle is off. Um, we're not necessarily in a position where we can support the growth of a baby, So I think it's always going to be difficult. The therapist in me wants to say mindset work and creating changes in the way that we think about ourselves and the world around us. It's hard work, but it's important work. And if there's opportunity to start exploring some of those stories that you're telling yourself of why you have to keep training more or why you have to eat less, and we can really start challenging them and creating new stories, that's the ultimate, right? That's how we're going to be able to create real change. I also know that that's not always a quick fix. So sometimes if we really get clear on why, why you're wanting to make nutritional changes, 
really seeing the purpose of creating a body that is healthy enough to support pregnancy and not just support pregnancy, handle delivery, be strong and healthy enough to support recovery, postpartum, breastfeeding, if that's important to you. If we can get really clear on that why and even start building um, self-esteem through habits and making commitments to yourself and following through with them and complimenting yourself in the mirror and all of those little things that add up over time, we can slowly start shifting away from old mindsets towards ones that allow us to step into pregnancy and doing whatever we have to do to take that next step. And I think that it's really like our culture has made women feel like we have to do it all. We have to be a certain size. And I don't think a lot of, at least the women I work with, it's really internally motivated. I feel like it's more of like an external motivation to look a certain way. And I do feel like social media plays a role with that, having uh, our scales in the bathroom that we step on in the morning, like, and it it is really number focused. And I think I might have shared uh, the story on the podcast before, but I just remember I had a a female that every morning she was stepping on the scale and her weight was going up, but her clothes were fitting looser. But in her mind, she couldn't recognize that her clothes were fitting looser because the number on the scale was going up. And Mm -hmm. as a culture, I feel like we put so much emphasis on the number on the scale. We forget about all the other things. Like how is our energy? How is our mental clarity? How do our clothes Mm -hmm. fit? How do we feel? Um, So I think, you know, you mentioned telling yourself positive like affirmations in the mirror. Like I know for me, like even just writing down positive things on sticky notes, I know it's like super cheesy. Um, but sometimes you have to tell yourself the same thing over and over again before you actually believe it. Um, Mm -hmm. so I really, I, I love positive affirmations. Do you have, uh, I saw on your website that you do some different, uh, positive affirmations. I don't know if that's more through delivery or in the postpartum, but, uh, is there anything that you coach your patients on when trying to figure out what positive affirmations are, how to utilize them, how to come up with positive affirmations? Absolutely. So there's definitely some general affirmations that people can find beneficial, right? Like even the I'm beautiful, I'm enough, um, I'm capable, I'm strong. All of those are really beneficial. They're going to be even more beneficial when there's something you actually connect with, when there's something relative to whatever you're experiencing in your life. Um, And I tend to find that general affirmations like I'm beautiful doesn't always hit home quite the same way as affirmations like I'm open to believing that I'm beautiful or in the past I've believed that I'm beautiful or I could believe that I am beautiful. It just makes it a little bit easier to have a buy-in. And obviously those are a little bit more about appearance. We can also work self-love in terms of traits that you care about yourself, preparing yourself for labor, getting through pregnancy, I believe that my body is capable of conceiving. We can fit affirmations in anywhere. Even my clients who are further into motherhood, we talk about affirmations all the time. It's about finding affirmations that you connect with and that actually work for you and that recognizing they're a tool in the toolbox. An affirmation that works for you this week might not work for you next week. But if we can try different ones on, find the one that works best and much like you said, it it feels kind of cheesy for people. So I always tell them to try and put that preconceived notion aside. But sometimes the process of, let's say with a post-it note, writing it down, reading it and saying it aloud, all of those different processes for your brain becomes really beneficial. And I know even from a learning perspective, I think people have to hear something, some silly number, like 19 times for it to register. But that goes when you're trying to internalize things too. So repetition really is key. And is there any other way besides the sticky notes that you use as like reminders to do? Because I know for me, one of the hardest things is I'm, I'm so busy before I know it, like five days has gone by and I didn't write in my gratitude journal or, you know, Mm -hmm. certain things. So for me, I always have to tie it to something I do each day. So like I do deep breathing every morning, every night, um, before I go to bed and when I wake up, because those are something hopefully I do every single day, any ways to help women kind of put affirmations into their lifestyle, any reminders or tips or things that you've found successful in the past? For sure. We've got to make it doable for you. You know, moms everywhere are drowning. So the last thing that they want to do is take 
you know, an extra 15 minutes that they feel like they don't have to write something on a post-it note and stand in front of a mirror. If that's doable for you, awesome. It's going to be even more effective. But if that just doesn't feel doable for you, then maybe take 30 seconds the night before and set a timer in your phone that at 3 p.m. you get an alarm with the affirmation already in it and it's your job to read it. Take a screenshot of one that you resonate with. Make it your background for the week. Um, kind of like you were talking about habit stack it. Consider what habits you already have in place. If you go to the coffee pot every morning and you make coffee, stick a post-it to your coffee mug or um, write it on a piece of paper the night before or just use that as an opportunity to take pause while the coffee is brew brewing and think, what can I compliment myself on today? What can I feel good about? What was a win of today or yesterday? It, it has a cumulative effect over time. I love the phone background. I actually never thought of that. And how many times do you grab your phone to check what time it is? If you don't right. want to watch, that's a, that's a great <laughs> idea. That's way better than the sticky note in the mirror. I, I really love that. I'm going to implement that. What about when you're talking about preconception diet? We know like whole foods, lots of different colors, the veggies, the fruits, the proteins, healthy fats. Do you think it really matters buying organic versus not organic? What is your thought there? I always like to like inform my clients about it. You know, if we're really concerned over pesticides, if there are some foods that, you know, some micronutrients that could be more bioavailable so our body breaks it down better, that's always going to be beneficial. I typically find, you know, especially to not get too into the weeds of it, even just being aware of the dirty dozen and the, um, is it the clean 13? My brain is freezing, but yes. all of that, yes, like that can be really helpful, which is just an easy list. Anybody can Google it of what, uh, fruits and vegetables to buy organic, which ones that you don't need to worry about. When it comes to proteins, I'm always game for higher quality. If you can do grass-fed, pasture-raised, that's going to be ideal. It's also expensive. So I would rather a client incorporate healthy proteins into their diet, even if they can't be organic, than not do it at all. But if you can pick the highest quality that you can afford, that's going to be ideal. And I think one of the things is we always strive or think that we need to be perfect. So it's like an all or nothing mentality. And I always mm -hmm. talk to my patients, it's it's not always the organic or not organic. It's how many times are you grabbing goldfish or pretzels when you're in the pantry rather than something like almonds or walnuts. You know, some of those small things over time that lead to to big transformation. And so I think that's good to not get into the weeds. And one of the things I found that's the most uh, cost effective is like getting to know your local farmers, like farmers mm -hmm. markets, local butchers, things like that, where you can get good quality food for not super expensive. Um, but I do love the environmental working group, Dirty Dozen. I don't buy everything organic, but I do try to buy those um, organic. And Costco, you can buy like organic bulk now, which is Yes. Really cost effective. I feel like I'm I'm happy with some of the direction they're moving with their products. So the preconception, I don't know if this is something that you talk to your clients about or not, and I might be going off on too much of a tangent, but we work with a lot of women with infertility, which, you know, conventional right. medicine diagnoses that after one year of trying, really timed out trying, which is a long time. I mean, that's 12 months of tracking your cycle, having intercourse around ovulation, and it can really kind of be hard on your mental health when you're really trying mm -hmm. to get pregnant. I feel like women spend their whole life trying not to get pregnant, and then when they try to, it doesn't happen as quickly as they think. Is there anything that you kind of uh, talk with your clients about to kind of help through the trying period of getting pregnant? Maybe it doesn't happen as quickly. Um, anything that you do to kind of prep them from a mindset standpoint before they actually start trying to conceive? Yeah, I think, well, in terms of prepping mindset wise, I feel like there's prep work that we can do, but sometimes we just can't prepare for it until we're in it, right? Like we can say, let's be realistic. Getting pregnant is actually really difficult. It's not like you can get pregnant 30 days a month. It may take time. We're still working on getting you as healthy as possible. Let's be patient. And, a, you know, a woman might feel prepared for that, but then like month six rolls around, month seven rolls around, it just starts to wear on them and it becomes really frustrating and really confusing. And it starts to feel like you don't have control over your own body and you're just starting to wonder 
when it'll happen and if it'll happen. So proactively, I still think it's important to have those conversations for for a woman to feel empowered and educated in knowing what this process looks like. But I always advocate too for my clients to know that this is about having a team, a support team for you, making sure that they feel comfortable and supported by their partner, making sure that they have a doctor that they trust and that they feel confident can help with fertility concerns and questions or a referral should they need a fertility specialist. And because there's such a loss of control, we place a lot of, you know, feeling out of control when you're potentially not able to get pregnant. A lot of it is also what can we control in this time? What sort of lifestyle changes can we be doing to make sure that you're the healthiest, happiest version of yourself right now, and then take it month by month and be present in coping from there. I think that's great. And I think getting that team is so important and not waiting. There's so many times I talk to women and they go to their OB or their midwife and they just kind of, their advice is, well, keep trying. You know, it's not really infertility till you, it's been a year. Like we'll get you with the fertility specialist once it's been a year. And that can be so frustrating. And so in functional medicine, like, of course, um, I know just that you've experienced functional medicine, but it's all mm-hmm. about taking a deeper dive and along with all these lifestyle things that we're talking about today and the mindset things is seeing if there's any imbalances that you can work on before you even start trying to get pregnant or, you know, maybe even trying for three months and you're already feeling frustrated and you're not getting the answers from your OB or midwife. It may be time to look, as you mentioned earlier, at your hormones and see what we can optimize. I I just have such a heart for women that are told like, let's just keep trying for another year and they don't okay. feel empowered to make the changes. Right. Well, I love that you mentioned that too. And I, I've had several women in my life and clients who were told that. And it's so defeating. And, you know, they'll be told like, oh, it's only another three months. Well, it's still been nine months of trying without any success where, you know, at that point they had thought, well, if I got pregnant right away, I would have a baby by now. It's just such an overwhelming process. And really, there's no reason why a woman, you know, as I've seen, as you know, there's no reason why a woman can't go get labs done and just have a better indication of what's going on and feel more empowered and more in control. Because if a woman doesn't get in with a doctor until a year in, and then it takes three to six months, let's say, to really optimize things, now we're a year and a half in and it just builds with the overwhelm and the frustration. And then of course you don't get pregnant and pop out a baby right away. That's a process Correct. too. Right. So um, yeah, I know it's it's really amazing how how long and, and really beautiful, but how long the process can be trying to get pregnant and making a baby. So before mm-hmm. we move to the actual pregnancy, is there one um, kind of small change that you wish all women would make before they tried to conceive? We really like to focus on like little things that people can actually do um, that can have big, big impact. Yeah, I think what's really cool about this conversation that we're having and more awareness coming up about the preconception period is that women are starting to realize that it is actually part of your pregnancy journey, that it's not like pregnancy starts once you get that positive test, that this period counts too. And that doesn't mean that there have to be big dramatic changes. Even if you consider it like practice before the big game, there's still small steps that you can be taking to prepare yourself for that time. So it might be going ahead and getting on a prenatal It might be just drinking a little bit more water or getting a little bit more sleep or really evaluating your training program and saying, you know, is this conducive towards competitive goals or fat loss goals or is this conducive towards a healthy body that is ready to conceive? So even looking at the habits that you already have and seeing if you can just be 1% better or make a subtle change to set you up for more success for pregnancy, those little steps add up in big ways like you were saying. I love thinking about the preconception as part of your pregnancy, like that whole time period, because I know some of my friends and some of the uh, female patients I have, as soon as they get a positive pregnancy test, they like clean up everything in their lifestyle. <laughs> like all of a sudden, mm-hmm. they're like, what am I putting in my mouth? What am I drinking? What am I, you know, all, all of a sudden, it's it's super critical, which is great. I mean, we want to be aware of what we're putting in and on our bodies. But I do think it's important to think of the preconception as part of that pregnancy journey, too. Um, Of course, not to be terrified and live in a bubble, but just being aware. So I think that it's great to think of that preconception as part of the pregnancy period. So now we have gotten pregnant and we don't always feel the best in the first trimester, you know, depending on the person, Mm -hmm. sometimes the second and the third. Um, What are some common symptoms that you hear from your clients once they 
get pregnant? What are some of the common symptoms you hear? There's so many. I think the most common that I've heard of and that other people know of are the food aversions, the food cravings, the morning sickness, the fatigue. Those really spike up a lot, especially in that first trimester for a lot of women. It looks different for everybody. Some women never have it. Some women even experience it in their second trimester or throughout their pregnancy. But really in that first trimester, it gets going. And then there's other symptoms too, acid reflux, uh, muscle cramps, constipation, all of that that I feel like like have to be recognized because a lot of times um, clients will be like, I didn't know that I would get such bad Charlie horses, or I didn't realize constipation would be this big of an issue or acid reflux is overwhelming and it can be really scary. So there's um, obviously things that we can do to help mitigate it, but it's also knowing that it's a normal part of a healthy pregnancy. How did you, cause you have two children. I just have one baby. Yes. Did you feel very different between your two pregnancies? I did. Yes. My first pregnancy was relatively symptom free at first. I had about three weeks of slight morning sickness. Um, and really, which is something that I'll advise with clients too, as long as I kept food in my system, as long as I didn't let my stomach get too empty, as long as I was managing my blood sugars, as long as I wasn't eating foods that triggered nausea, which was like really rich foods for me, I felt really great. And I was happy and energetic throughout my pregnancy. My daughter was like where I was like brushing my teeth throwing up at the same time <laughs> and was exhausted and uncomfortable. And so they were really like night and day. I always find that so fascinating because it's like, you know, your health is probably pretty similar between the two pregnancies and how different it can be. And that's a lot of my patients are like, well, maybe I should have taken care of myself better before I got pregnant and I wouldn't have these symptoms. And I just think that sometimes pregnancy is pregnancy and you're going to, your hormone shifts are going to be different. The baby's needs are different. So some of the women that I talk with, they feel like with their pregnancy that maybe they could have done something to get healthier before they got pregnant. And that's why I wanted to see how you felt through your pregnancy because you had two babies. Your health is probably very similar. And yet one time you felt super nauseous. We're throwing up a lot more. The other time you felt relatively okay. So that's one thing I always tell my patients. It's not your fault. There's nothing you can do better. It's hormone shifts. It's what the baby's needs are. Um, and pregnancy is pregnancy. Sometimes you're just not going to feel good. Um, so let's talk about your second baby when you were really nauseous. Did you find any tips or tricks that kind of helped you through that period? So I tried to rely on the same things I did with my first, making sure I had food in my system, trying not to let my stomach get too empty. Um, but it was definitely much more intense and more difficult to manage. So um, I tried really hard to get in nutrients where I could. But the reality is sometimes the best that I could do was crackers or things like that. And I've had a lot of clients experience that too. Because blood sugars can be changing so much in the first trimester, it can kind of create like a hypoglycemic effect for some women. So carb cravings make sense. But instead of just eating crackers, if there was a way that I could have a little bit of cheese with it too, or um, even though I had an aversion to some protein, sometimes I didn't mind eating them if they were kind of hidden in a sauce or like a stir fry or something that was a little bit more carb heavy. So instead of just the pasta, maybe putting a meat sauce with some spinach that was kind of hidden in it on top of it. So to satisfy that carb craving, eat things that felt a little bit more comfortable in my stomach, but try and hide some of those nutrients and get them in as well. And fortunately for me, it really shifted around that 12 week mark, like it does for a lot of women. Um, Ginger chews worked well, peppermint, acupuncture, uh, or acupressure bracelets, those can work well too. Um, but sometimes, like you said, it has nothing to do with the pregnant mom. It's just a result of hormone fluctuations. I have actually seen so many different theories, but no one <laughs> um, deciding proven factor of what causes morning sickness. And so sometimes if we can't address it, we can at least manage it. And then I've had some clients, which you maybe can speak to more, have some success with B6 supplementation or other supplements or, or medications to help there too. B6. Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of success with B6 and it's kind of silly that they call it morning sickness. Cause I don't know about you, but mine was never just in the morning. 
Right. Agreed. I've I've never met anybody that's like, oh, yeah, I just felt a little nauseous in the morning and then I was fine the rest of the day. It's kind of a silly, um, a silly statement. (laughs) Just sickness. I know. But it's really interesting to me, almost across the board, every female I work with has vegetable aversions. It seems like that is one Mm -hmm. of the biggest symptoms that I hear. Did you have uh, food aversions with both your pregnancies or only your daughter? Only my daughter. Um, I would I would agree. Vegetables and protein are the most common aversions that I see, especially the chicken. Um, I don't know why that in particular, but that seems most common with my clients. Um, I actually craved protein and vegetables with my son, which was bizarre. I feel like that's what every woman would hope for. But with my daughter, I, I had a lot of aversions to both. So um, sometimes by mixing it up, it wasn't necessarily that I just had a problem with chicken. It was that I didn't want baked chicken, but I didn't mind it in the crock pot or I didn't mind a meat that had a sauce on it or a marinade on it. So sometimes if we can change up the flavor or the texture or the cooking mechanism that can offer a little bit more ease and getting it in um, and just being creative as we go. Yeah, I was so opposite of what I thought. I was pretty much plant-based before I got pregnant, maybe like 80, 85% plant-based. And the second I got pregnant, all I wanted was meat. I didn't even want carbs. I didn't want cracker or bread. I I wanted like short rib and meatballs. And <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing ever. Um, my husband called me. He was like, where are you? And I was in the frozen section, not at like Whole Foods or something. I was at the frozen section of Kroger getting some really poor quality frozen meatballs. <laughs> and that's all I wanted. I didn't want sauce on them. And it's just pregnancy can make you do some really crazy things. So mm-hmm. definitely nausea is real. I know for me, I had to like eat in between every single patient to kind of combat that. Um, I actually gained my most weight in the first trimester, which is so bizarre. Um, and then it really slowed down even making a baby. Um, but the thing I find so crazy and why I think so many women feel a lot more tired, they feel a lot worse is we have to understand in that first trimester, our body is building an organ. Like it is Mm -hmm. making the placenta, which is just so mind blowing to me that we don't already have a placenta lying around. Like in that first three months, your body is building that. And that's a lot of work to make a whole organ that is going to nourish your baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we have to give ourselves some grace. And part of that comes from education. I think being more educated is empowering to understand. And that makes it less likely to beat up on yourself or be like, why am I so tired? Or I'm just being lazy. No, no, I'm making an organ. And I know for myself in my second pregnancy, I had to give myself a lot of grace too, because you know, my son was only eight months when I got pregnant with my daughter. So my body had just been pregnant. It was probably got pregnant a little sooner than it should. I was still in the process of healing and recovery from my first pregnancy. And now I had a one-year-old that I was chasing around while I was pregnant. So I think that we have to recognize circumstances don't always look the same. We can't always compare one pregnancy to the last one because A, every pregnancy is just really different, but B, your circumstances might be different. And so it's okay if, if you're having to adjust as you go too. Did you find any tips? I mean, I can't imagine having a one-year-old and also not feeling good or not even a one-year-old. Um, anything that you found that helped you with the fatigue? Uh, I mean, exercise, honestly, and I know that it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but exercise has some benefits for actually nausea. So it helped with sickness and it always helped me a little bit with energy. It was not crushing myself in the gym, but just getting out and moving made a really big difference. And honestly, listening and letting myself rest when I needed to, not waiting until I was in such a kind of recovery debt and then trying to claw my way out, but instead taking intentional breaks and acts of self-care along the way. The fatigue just kind of is what it is to some extent, but, you know, making sure that blood sugars were balanced, moving my body, all of that certainly helped not make it worse. I think walks, like if you can get natural sunlight and go for walks, that was Mm -hmm. one of the best things for me too. Yes. So any foods that you really encourage or any changes to exercise routines during this actual pregnancy period? So a lot of it's going to be really similar from preconception. Um, We might need to see an increase in calories as you move into pregnancy. So it can even be adding in more of the same good stuff. 
I do really like to recommend eggs during pregnancy. They're just a really great source of choline, and there's more and more data coming out on the importance of choline for cognitive development, but it can be really hard to get through real food, and the egg yolk itself is a really choline-dense food option, so I love that. And then again, with slow-cooked meats, with bone broth, with complete proteins, with DHA through oily fish like salmon, all are going to be really good options to have in that pregnancy period. Yeah. And I know for me, one of the things, um, just kind of my personal experience with pregnancy is I did not, I'm one of those women that's super, super busy. I own my own business. I get up early. I work long hours, you know, all those things. So taking care of myself sometimes is the last thing that I do, which it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But when I was pregnant, first trimester gained the most weight. All I wanted was meat. Second trimester felt amazing, incredible. Same with the third trimester. I really felt great being pregnant. Um, I almost didn't have as much of an appetite in that third trimester when I didn't realize how many more calories you actually need to be consuming. And mm-hmm. I was working long days. And so I'm on my feet all day. And so I really, I had a little scare where in the third trimester, I stopped gaining weight and I never weighed myself. I wasn't really paying attention to it until all of a sudden the OB tells me like, Hey, the last three appointments, you haven't gained any weight. We need to send you to a high risk specialist. Mm. And I had no idea. Nobody had talked to me about what I need to be eating. Nobody had talked and I'm like in the medical field, but I'm, you know, seeing patients all day and running around and I probably was eating still 1800, 2000 calories, but that clearly isn't enough in the third trimester. When you are nourishing a pretty full-size baby. Um, So I had to start really being mindful and eating 3,000 calories a day. I had to figure out some really nutritionally dense food. So I was finding like 300-calorie protein shakes to be drinking in between meals. And yeah, that was just kind of a personal experience that kind of threw me for a tailspin in that third trimester that I was like, wow, um, 3,000 calories, you know, not everybody needs 3,000, but I did, is a lot to consume in a day. Well, especially when you're not used to it, when you're having to jump up that high. And I agree. It's just, there's not a lot of education around it. I remember when I got pregnant with my son, you know, I, I was working in the coaching space and helping clients with nutrition and nobody really had any information about pregnancy and nobody really wanted to touch it. Right. They were like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to advise a pregnant woman and be wrong. So that was a lot of why I got my certification and did courses and really educated myself because a lot of the research has changed. You know, old traditional um, rhetoric was high carb diet, blanket statements, you know, gain 25 to 35 pounds, eat an extra 300 calories, but it's really individualized. And now a lot of the research is actually showing higher protein, higher fat diet. Carbs are still important. Fiber is massively important, but really prioritizing protein and fat. Nobody had had the, um, had given me the education that from the minute we become pregnant, we start seeing increases in our basal metabolic rate. So just the baseline amount of calories that you need to survive automatically goes up during pregnancy and breastfeeding, which makes sense. Your body needs more to survive. It's not just about you now, but it's like, it just didn't even occur to me before I was taught that. So for some people, they're fine with an extra 300 calories a day over the course of pregnancy, right? It's not even 300 calories a day in the first trimester. It's not until the end. But for some women, it requires an enormous amount of calories relative to what they're used to, um, especially if they have high activity level, um, if they've been under eating for a period of time, whatever the case may be. And I think us being able to hone in to what we need and, and having the education creates more empowered pregnancy experiences. Right. And for me, it was, it was, you know, so elementary, but I really had to set an alarm on my phone to remind me to like, go Mm -hmm. eat something with protein and a healthy fat um, to hit those caloric goals. And I just realized through my own experience, how intentional we really need to be about uh, listening to our body about actually like making sure that we are gaining the appropriate weight and it is spaced out and it's not the total weight gain throughout the whole pregnancy. It's, you know, per trimester. Um, And so, yeah, it was a very, it was an interesting learning experience for me for sure. Uh, Anything that you want to include kind of like we talked about in the preconception period, are there a few things that you wish every pregnant woman knew or some questions that you think they should bring to their maybe OB or midwife to find out if they're the Mm -hmm. right fit for labor 
Absolutely. I know that we've touched upon this idea that every pregnancy is different, but just kind of normalizing that so that women can give themselves some grace if things don't look the way that they think it's supposed to or the way that it that it once did before. And also recognizing, you know, kind of to play on what you were saying about making an organ. Nobody really talks about how your body is a miracle maker. I mean, it's making an entire human being from scratch. I remember holding my pregnant son and being like 10 months ago, nothing about you existed. How incredibly bizarre that is as a concept. And I just think that if we as women start thinking of ourselves that way, especially during pregnancy and caring for ourselves that way, um, nourishing ourselves mentally and physically that way, it's going to potentially create a different experience. And that sense of confidence will also lead into us feeling like we can advocate for ourselves with our, our medical professionals. So the reality is you have choices as a woman of, you know, to some extent, baby's also going to determine some things for sure, but of what your um, medical experience looks like, what your delivery experience looks like, and you have the opportunity to advocate for yourself, to ask your doctor what their stances are on natural unmedicated labor, if that's important to you, what their stances are on not being induced, if that's important to you, or a scheduled C-section. I just know a lot of clients have been really scared to ask those questions or they've gone in and met with a doctor and said, well, my doctor's just really adamant that we induce at 39 weeks no matter what, but I don't want to induce at 39 weeks. And then being able to advocate for themselves to find another doctor or to explore why that's so important. Um, you know, there's lots of data that can help a woman make a decision if she wants a vaginal birth, C-section birth, whatever. But I don't really care what my client chooses. I care that she knows why she's choosing what she's choosing and that she feels comfortable adv advocating for what she wants to choose, barring, of course, some sort of medical complication that causes her to go in a different direction. Yeah, I think that is one of the things, too, that I experience is they don't really talk to you about the options. You kind of fit into the medical model. And so there are certain things they do at each visit. There are certain um, things that they have as like a standard practice policy, like, okay, if you haven't given birth by this amount of time, like, here's how we induce. But the truth is, there's so many options. There's, mm -hmm. you know, I was even doing my own research to come up because I my my little one was still in there at 41 weeks, and she didn't want to come out. And there's, you know, non-pharmaceutical ways to induce. Like I did a balloon dilation instead of Pitocin, but it wasn't an option that they just talked to me about. I kind of was my own advocate. And so I do think it's important to find the right fit and to ask the questions and to just know that no birth is the wrong birth. Just as you said, mm -hmm. it's like, I don't care what my women choose either, but I, I wanted to be really informed on what my different options were. And, um, I was thankful because I, I was nervous. I gave birth at Northside Hospital where my husband and I were both born, which is kind of crazy. That's cool. Yeah, right. We all three were born at the same hospital, like literally the exact same Atlanta <laughs> Northside. Um, and so it's mind blowing, but I really wanted to give birth at the birth center. And I was worried if I was at Northside, I wasn't going to be able to have the birth that I wanted. And, mm. you know, my husband, it was important to him that we were in a hospital for our first birth. And so we kind of compromised and it was such an amazing experience because I realized we really, no matter where we are, no matter what where, what the circumstances are, um, I mean, of course, outside of an emergency situation, we can have a birth plan. We can talk to our team. Like we are entitled to that. Um, of course, there are emergencies and things we have to be flexible about, but I, I was able to have the exact birth I wanted at Northside and the stigma that I had in my brain that I couldn't have a natural birth if I was at Northside. Like they were just going to make me get medication. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know why I had that stigma in my brain that it's like, oh, it's going to be this catalyst of medical interventions and I'm going to end up having to have a um, C-section because I'm 41 weeks pregnant. She's not coming. It's going to be this catalyst. And it ended up being the most perfect, beautiful birth. And um, I had a really wonderful team. And it was at that moment, I don't know about you and, and your experience, but that I have never felt more strong in my whole entire life. And then at that mm -hmm. moment, I felt like I was like a superwoman and I could do anything that I ever wanted to do um, mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's such a miracle, like what our body is capable, whether you have a natural birth, whether you have a C-section, like we are just remarkable people that can do so much, including making and having a baby. It's incredible. It really is. So we're going to end with the postpartum period. Um, 
Is there a certain time frame? Because I know I was doing some research on this with a pelvic floor talk that I did with my sister, who's a physical therapist. And what I found was really for like insurance reasons, they count the postpartum period as six weeks, which is like the most (laughs) mind blowing thing I've ever, ever seen. So what do you what do you count as the postpartum period? Well, I mean, I would argue that we're always postpartum. Once we have a baby, we are always a woman who has had a baby and we are always adjusting to a body after having a baby. Um, but from like a recovery standpoint, I typically say one to two years. Some of that can be relative to the type of delivery that you had. Um, there's been some findings that women who have vaginal births can recover a little bit faster than C-section just because you know, abdominal surgery and all that. But it also can really be varied based on how long you breastfeed um, and what recovery looks like for your particular pregnancy and delivery and what your postpartum period looks like. So I feel like one to two years is a good rule of thumb. But like I said, I'd argue that we're always postpartum. I would totally agree with that. And I think that's such a great kind of realistic expectation when you meet with clients, because so many people think at three months, they're going to be back doing everything they were doing. And Mm -hmm. it can really be detrimental to our health if we have that expectation. So I think that one to two years at least is is critical. And one of the things just crazy to me is if you give birth in Europe, you basically go home with a pelvic floor physical therapist if it's a vaginal delivery. And here people are like, what's a pelvic physical therapist? Um, There's just not a lot. And again, it goes back to this whole conversation when it comes around the mom in this postpartum period. So what are some common struggles that you hear women face postpartum? Well, I mean, I think even to capitalize on that pelvic floor health note, you know, I had to really do my research and find a pelvic floor therapist for myself. And part of why I was introduced to that is because the gym that I worked out at at the time hosted a pelvic floor therapist. Had I not been exposed to it, I might not have known to get that on my support team. So, you know, like we've, we talked about you, you've now not only created an entire human from scratch, you've now delivered that human being and the placenta that nourished it. So even if there's not a lot of external wounds, we can't discount the internal wounds that have occurred as a result. So we've talked about, you know, having a support team throughout. And now it's about adding to that support team. So it's, you know, do I feel like somebody is helping me feel supported with my physical body and my nutrition and managing sleep? Do I have somebody who's helping advocate for my mental health? Do I have a medical professional that I care about? But do I also have a pelvic floor specialist? Because I think postpartum, a lot of women expect like, you know, this baby popped out. Now I'll just quote unquote, bounce back to where I was and not understanding why they can't go to the gym the way that they did or why they're peeing when they sneeze. I remember feeling like I was weaker postpartum than I had been pregnant when I tried to work out again. And I think noting that those things are really common, but not necessarily normal, right? Like pee when you sneeze and advocating and just adding to your arsenal of the support team is one really important place to start. And I think we really normalize a lot of symptoms in the postpartum. Like, oh, yep. yeah, you know, I am, I'm urinating a little bit on myself or um, I'm feeling a little bit blue. This is just like a normal part of postpartum. And it's common, but it doesn't need to be normal. And there are, you know, people you can meet with and specialists. And I don't, I never want my, my female patients to normalize symptoms like, oh, well, I'm just going to be like this the rest of my life because there is a solution to everything in my opinion. And, um, yeah, I think the pelvic floor is a huge thing and it really isn't only for vaginal deliveries. Cause if you think of, right. even if you had a C-section, I mean, you're holding a baby, like you're holding, but depending on the size a six to nine pound baby on your pelvic floor. So C-section or vaginal delivery, pelvic floor is still super important. Um, Do you see a lot of your patients with postpartum depression? Is that a common thing? It is. And it's more common than people talk about. Um, I think it's like 20% of women will experience postpartum depression. There is a difference between postpartum depression and baby blues. So I also have a lot of women who, you know, for maybe about two weeks, they feel sad, they feel disconnected. And then, I mean, one client even said to me, it was like a switch flipped all of a sudden, and she didn't feel sad anymore. It's not always that drastic for a lot of women. But once it's going on continually, um, it may meet right criteria for postpartum depression. But one thing that's interesting to me is how many women don't know that 
postpartum depression is not the only perinatal mood disorder. So there's also postpartum anxiety, there's postpartum OCD, there's postpartum psychosis, there's postpartum trauma, there's so many other components. And as you said, women are normalizing it. So they're not seeking help. And whether you be someone, you're somebody who is maybe not in a position where you have a clinical diagnosis of a perinatal mood disorder, but you are experiencing those baby blues and you feel really alone and you feel unsupported, there's still an opportunity for you to seek help, maybe with counseling, have a support team and get some quick wins throughout the day. Um, And then especially if we're looking at a perinatal mood disorder, there are clinicians who specialize in that and that can really shape your your postpartum period. I know that I struggle with postpartum depression with my son and I struggle with postpartum anxiety with my daughter. And I, I even as a professional knowing it, I found myself feeling like I need to just white knuckle my way through it. And it just doesn't have to be like that. Getting help and support and assistance can actually help you get back some of that postpartum period in a way that you can enjoy it. Yeah, I like that white knuckle that we do. We just try to like, well, we've got all the stuff we've got to do. Because as you know, days fly by when you have a newborn. I mean, you're feeding, you're changing diapers, you're feeding, you're changing diapers, you're not getting good quality sleep. And so it can feel very daunting to think of, well, how do I have the time to go and see somebody myself? And I just think it's, you know, that silly analogy that you can't pour from an empty cup. And babies are super demanding, but if we don't take care of us, we won't be able to be the mom that we want to be. We won't be able to be present and enjoy the little smiles and the laughs and all those things. So taking the time to take care of you, I think, is one of the most valuable things you can do in the postpartum period. Any resources or tools that you really like? Is there any books that you found helpful in that postpartum period? Um, There is. Well, there's some great, you know, if even if you're in like the Atlanta area and you go to some of the practitioners websites who practice in the perinatal mood disorder space, a lot of them will have some great articles and blogs up just providing additional education on the topics. Um, Even on Amazon now, they've got some really great books and workbooks. There's one workbook that I think is called, you know, the workbook for the pregnant and postpartum client. I'll I'll look up the name and whether you want to link it or not. But it's just a really great workbook for um, women who might be trying to work through anxiety or OCD in that postpartum period. So there can be some affordable resources. Obviously, you know, the value of going and seeing a therapist is going to be really instrumental. Um, But even if you just have the ability to have a little book that you take a look at on the side, that workbook is uh, the Pregnancy and Postpartum Anxiety Workbook. So that's a really excellent resource. Um, It's just giving yourself a little bit of support and shifting the focus back on you. And if you're not in a position where it's a perinatal mood disorder, if it's just feeling a little bit out of control, wanting to make some different lifestyle changes, wanting to make self-care a bit more of a priority for you, coaching could be a good option too. And I think one of the things when we talk about like mood disorders too that people don't talk about enough is how hard breastfeeding really is. Oh, yes. So that is one of the things. Do you coach your women or do you help with, um, I know there's lactation consultants out there that that's their specialty, of course, but sure. Anything that you hear from your clients, because that's one thing I hear over and over again is nobody told me how hard breastfeeding was and that a lot of the depression and anxiety comes from the stigma that Mm -hmm. they have to be able to breastfeed for the health of the baby. And when it doesn't work out the way that they think they it should, it's it can really impact them mentally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that something that you hear a lot from women when it comes to breastfeeding? all the time. And there are certainly women who have beautiful breastfeeding experiences or some women who have good and bad, but I don't think that it's discussed enough how hard it is, even if you really enjoy it. And there's a lot of things at play, right? I mean, hormones are still adjusting. The reality is you gave birth to your placenta, which was primarily responsible for your hormone production. So then right after you have a baby, your hormones crash and they're trying to rebuild. But there are different hormones at play when you're breastfeeding than when you're not breastfeeding. So that can obviously impact mood. Um, Your sleep is thrown off, which 100% impacts mood. Baby is still, you are still responsible for nourishing baby through breastfeeding. So baby's still taking a lot of your nutrients. So 
if you're not getting in as many nutrients, if you're starting to get a little bit depleted, you might notice things that feel kind of mild, like mom brain, right? Because baby's taking your fat stores and fat makes up 60% of your of baby's brain. And that can cause you leaving, uh, feeling a little foggy headed. But on a bigger scale, it can leave you feeling completely exhausted um, and completely depleted. And so all of those physiological components are going to play a role. And then just feeling isolated. I mean, I know that there's like a million memes that go around about it but I do remember like waking up in the middle of the night and glaring at my sleeping husband like why 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 is this on me and it was just really um lonely and kind of overwhelming I know that I had a lot of issues with milk production no matter how much I tried and it just felt defeating and like I was failing and I know now that I wasn't um now I have that logical perspective and my body was just doing the best that it could. But I do think the stigma of you have to breastfeed your baby and, you know, Sally from work breastfed until her baby was three and whatever. <laughs> it just feels like a lot of pressure when we are already exhausted and healing and adjusting to a new norm and a new identity. And we don't want to feel like we're already struggling in that new identity before we've really even gotten a chance to get started. So I always recommend working with a lactation consultant anytime. Again, we're just adding to that arsenal. We're adding to that team. Anytime that we can get education and clarity around that, that's great. But with a lot of my clients, it's, it is a lot of education and a lot of support. And how can we, you know, what can we do to make sure that this isn't all on you? Does it work to pump so that your bottle, your husband can bottle feed the baby and you can get a little bit of a breather? Are you in a position where you want to start supplementing? How do you feel about that? Um, hey, you're on like full-time feeding duty and we know cluster feeding at night is really a nightmare for you. What can we be doing during the day so that we can actively be give, getting you little opportunities to refill your cup, knowing that it's going to be drained soon? And just taking that proactive approach to making sure that self-care is a non-negotiable because you're so busy taking care of them. It can feel like nobody's taking care of you. And it has to happen. And I think there's a really big, one of the things I talk with my husband about, because he, I think, is one of the most supportive husbands. He does get up and do one of the feedings. We pump and have bottles, and, and he gets up and does one of the feedings every night. But one of the things I talk to him about is there is such a biological difference between males and females. And mm -hmm. I didn't really realize that because at our house, we're very 50-50. We both work. We both help around the house. We both, well, Cameron actually cooks more than I do. Um, but we're very 50-50. And having a baby, there is a lot more that's on the mom no matter what just because mm -hmm. of the biological difference. I hear when she wakes up and is crying and he doesn't wake up, you know, mm -hmm. or I am nursing. And one of the big things, like as we talk about breastfeeding is she spends four days a week with grandparents while we both work. And then one day a week, she comes to work with me at Stout Wellness. Um, and so I've had to pump and give her basically bottles from the beginning because I um, went back to work a little bit sooner than I probably should. But owning a business, um, it's mm -hmm. kind of what I needed to do. But it was even hard for me because now she doesn't really like to nurse as much as she likes a bottle because mm. she gets the milk immediately. So she can sit there and like down seven ounces because she really really likes to eat a lot. Um, and if she nurses, she has to work a lot harder. And so for me, that was something that was emotionally challenging. Cause I was like, man, am I, am I depriving her of that? Like skin to skin contact and like the actual nursing. But then I had to remind myself, like I am working a full-time job and I'm pumping and still giving her breast milk. And if she doesn't right. want to nurse, she doesn't want to nurse. It's, it is what it is. Um, but you know, everybody has their own story and I think that we need to really address, uh, or, um, talk about birth, um, breastfeeding, all of this, we really need to talk about it in a non-judgmental way because there's no what is right and wrong. It's very individualized. And that's why I love so much what you do with the one-on-one -on -one coaching is you find solutions that work for your clients and okay. it doesn't look the same between every one of your clients. Exactly. It's so individualized. And I, I think a large element of it is, you know, having that support. That's one of the biggest indications for women women's mental health in the postpartum period is how supported that they feel and being able to deal with some of those mindset issues as they arise. You know, you brought up such an excellent point about your husband. I have clients all the time who need more help, but really struggle to ask for it where they feel guilty. Um, I know I experienced that a little bit and my husband's the same. Like he wanted to do everything as much as he could take off my plate. He, he wanted to, and there were just certain things biologically that he couldn't do. I was the one who was responsible for nursing, but one 
once I started advocating and saying, you know, hey, if I pump, can you bottle feed him? Or, hey, like, will you just wake up and hold my hand <laughs> as silly as that is? Like, I feel really alone. Or, hey, can you take that last diaper change, get him ready for bed and bring him straight to me in bed? So as soon as I'm done nursing, I can fall asleep. Not only was it a gift for me, it was actually a gift for him, too, because he got to feel like he was contributing and he was helping me and my mental health improved as well. And I think that's one of the really cool things about coaching is we get the opportunity to learn each woman and what her support team looks like and what her lifestyle looks like and what her individual experience looks like so that we can then customize a plan that helps her feel healthier and happier and actually enjoy whatever phase of motherhood she's in. And I think that plan can just change so frequently. Like you even think about how your husband's been able to help you in different seasons. It looks different and Mm -hmm. communication is key. That's the thing. Cameron and I always sit down and we're talking and we're like, okay, well, how can we, he's always asking me like, how can I help you this week? And it looks different from week to week. Um, and so it's just constantly, it's reevaluating, making changes, reevaluating, making changes. Um, I feel like that's the name of the game at our household these days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is. And I, I tell women all the time, like, it's never too late. You get to start taking care of yourself whenever you're ready. But don't keep putting it off. Don't put it off until the baby is this age or until motherhood gets easier or until you have a little bit more time. Because the earlier that you start, the more, the sooner you're creating these habits for yourself that you can grow into or you and your partner can grow into. So because I learned how to advocate for myself postpartum, because advocating for yourself and asking for help is a form of self-care, now it's easier. It's just part of my husband and I's routine where we collaborate with each other and we seek help from each other. That's a normal thing now because we implemented it so early on. So it's never too late. You can always start changing behaviors or creating opportunities for self-care. But the sooner you start, the more things are going to shift and become automatic for you long-term and you'll be better able to cope and manage whatever motherhood looks like for you moving forward. Yes, this was so good, Jess. Is there any final kind of words you have for our listener around preconception, pregnancy, postpartum? Just, I mean, if anybody's listening, you're doing great. It is such a beautiful, mysterious, kind of mind-boggling time for a lot of women. And so I think encouraging women to really trust their gut and just take care of themselves and know how capable they are is something that I feel like some woman out there probably needs to hear right now. Yes, we are always doing the best that we can. And that is the best that we can do for sure. Exactly. Where can our listeners find you? So they can go to my website, which is happybellycoaching.com. As you mentioned, I have a podcast, Listen Mama. um, And then I try and put up free content pretty much almost daily on my Instagram, which is at Jess Durando. Um, And then I have a blog on my website as well. And then I also, you know, offer a couple of eBooks and my one-on-one coaching information all available on my website or my Instagram. I am so excited about what you do. I think you're making such a big difference in so many women's life and just having this conversation and just knowing that no matter what you're feeling is okay and that there is a solution for everything and you need the right team on board is critical. So thank you so much for joining us and um, everybody be sure to reach out to Jess if you have any additional questions. And I listened to my first episode of the Listen Mama and it was great. So tune in there to- so glad. Yeah, Thank it was you. really, it was great. I look forward. I need, I need to fill my mind with all of the things that you're talking about on there in this uh, four month postpartum period. So I really I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And if anybody's listening and they're in the Atlanta area and they're needing a little bit more clinical support, just know that there's plenty of options. Um, Kate Ferguson therapy, some other great providers in the Atlanta area and keep advocating for yourself. And thank you so much for having me here and letting me be a part of the platform. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking so much time out of your afternoon to talk with us. Thank you. I look forward to talking soon. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.